0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, on July 20th, 817, Pope Pascal I began a project to transform the Church of Santa Pracede, the resting place of the sisters and martyrs Pudenziana and Prasede, executed in the 2nd century, legendarily believed to be daughters of the Roman Senator Pudens, who was himself believed to be one of the first, or the first, convert of St. Peter himself. To accompany the two sisters in their rebuilt church, Paschal removed 2,300 bodies from the catacombs and interred them in walls that were covered with glittering, colorful mosaics lit by hundreds of candles. It was symbolic of everything the Roman church had been and had become, built upon the bones of martyrs, now literally so, wealthy, sponsored by the emperor of the West, and shepherded by a powerful bishop, who at the very least was first among equals. Indeed, as my guest writes, Paschal had himself depicted in the apse of the church standing shoulder to shoulder with Peter, Paul, Pudenziana, and Placede. With Constantine's removal of the imperial capital to the new eastern city of Constantinople, the papacy gradually became the point of reference for Romans, and then eventually for all of those people in Western Europe who called themselves Christian. Even though its universal and awesome power had diminished by the middle of the 19th century, it still took an army to remove the papacy from its position at Rome's heart. And even in the 20th century, the 21st century, the papacy retained its ability to reduce and marginalize all other powers in Rome. My guest, Jessica Warnberg, is a historian of the religious and political culture of Europe, she has written about popes, princes, inquisitors, and Jesuits, and she is the author of City of Echoes, a new history of Rome, its pope, and its people, which is the subject of our conversation today. Jessica Warnberg, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, and this is the first podcast I'm recording about City of Echoes, so I'm really right. excited to talk about it. Excellent. <laughs>
0: You've been uh, stirring up a lot of things to talk about, about your favorite child,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's, it was, it's quite a lonely process writing, as I, yeah, any historian knows. Uh, and it can be quite a yeah a nervous process as well. So there's excitement and trepidation as you put the ideas out into the world.
0: Well, let me tell you what your book is not about. Uh, it's not about the papacy, really. It's not about famous popes. I, we might mention Gregory the Great briefly, but it's not about how the papacy is seen in China, or the Americas, or even France, necessarily. It's about the pope in Rome, and the Romans, and the stones of Rome, and that sort of place where all those three sets overlap, that really interesting place, where Rome as an artifact, as a people, and the papacy overlap. Am I on to something? Is that right?
1: I'm so glad to hear you say that. (laughs) Absolutely, that's exactly what this book is about. It's a narrative history of the relationship between the papacy and Rome, and then between them, and and very much when I talk about Rome I'm talking about a place, but I'm also talking about a people. Between these three things, the reciprocal influence, the relationship, to me they're inextricable. And the book was actually born from living in Rome and walking around Uh, and being in quite a unique position. I'm a fellow of the British Academy, living at the British School at Rome, with lots of scholars who knew all about Rome, but also artists who might have been inspired by an aspect of Roman or Italian history, but weren't necessarily learned about periods of its history, or or necessarily in detail, any of its history. So on walks around the city, um, being asked questions about all these monuments that I've seen many, many times and been interested in, but not really questioned. I was aware about how this relationship had coloured every single corner of the city, it seemed, and actually persisted in terms of shaping the fabric long after the emperors had fallen away, long after the kings of Italy, whether they be the Gothic or barbarian, sort of kings of the late antiquity, or the kings of Italy who rise up in the 19th century, the Pope was the, or the papacy rather, was the line that connected all of those episodes of Roman history. And today, even if you talk to Romans, uh, the majority of whom are unbelievers, and actually an atheist Roman uh, who I was talking to, I was writing this book, said to me, this relationship is inextricable. I cannot imagine Rome without the popes. He said, it's not the city of Rome that hosts the popes, the popes host the city of Rome. <laughs> so in the 21st century, a non-believing Roman sees the pope as the senior protagonist in the relationship between the papacy and a city which is now the capital of the nation of Italy, which is a republic headed by Giorgio Maloney, not the pope. And so I wanted to try to unpick that history To tell that story. And that was not something I'd seen in others. You know, there are very good collections of biography for the general reader as well. John Julius Norwich, also going back uh, further back in history to Pastor's History of the Popes, which is based on Vatican sources and archives. Um, And they tell the stories of popes. Eamon Duffy, a fantastic Mm -hmm. volume for the general reader on the history of the papacy. You also have volumes on the history of Rome. And actually one of the first people to see this book printed in its entire draft was a printer. Just at our local print shop, he handed over to me and said, History of Rome in one volume, it can't be done, no, which was not the reaction I really wanted <laughs> when I emerged from this, uh, this period of writing. But of course, yes. it's correct. Um, it can't be done. And so I'm looking like other writers who have looked at Rome through a lens, whether that be sackings of Rome or you know, a particular period. I'm looking at one lens, but I think it's a unique, illuminating uh, vantage uh. point because this is Rome's most enduring identity, even if it borrows from all of Rome's other identities. Yeah, and it
0: uh, forces us to look at Rome in a new way. When I was a kid fascinated with the Roman Empire and the Republic, I was impatient with all these books about Rome that talked about all this Pope stuff. I wanted to get the real Rome, but there is no real Rome. It is the most complex, multi-layered cake probably in Western Europe, maybe in the world continuously occupied since God knows when uh, till now in which all these it's not we can't isolate as we'll see we to isolate one layer and exclude the others is impossible you must understand the entire cake together this gives us a way of this gives us a way of this is like a core sample of this cake or of this mix extend the metaphor of a glacier sample doesn't go down all the way as we'll we'll start much later, hundreds of years after Rome was a thing. But it still takes us down quite a way, and it's a very interesting cross-section.
1: Yeah, no, I really appreciate that uh, that analogy. I think it's a great one. And I think also you pinpoint in your childhood example, getting to the real Rome. Rome is exciting, um, which makes it divisive that people think this is the most interesting aspect of Rome this is the most interesting aspect of Rome and historically it's made it incredibly alluring these ideas of Rome make Rome a place that people want to invade and capture and make their own they want to co-opt Rome and the popes become a part of that co-opting of Rome but it makes your life quite difficult as an historian um, because there are so many myths that you almost are you, you daren't start unpicking um, them because you think, what if it's not true? And, and so, for example, if what if the whole Peter thing—if that, if that's not if that—if that doesn't actually if that's not borne out by historical evidence, does everything else fall apart? And I think, yeah, it's, it poses challenges as, as an historian uh, dealing with a city that means so much to so many people and so many different things to so many people. The papacy as well means so much to so many people and so many things to so many people. Um, but it also means that it is, I think, a uniquely exciting case study for an historian, looking at it from any angle, actually. Daunting, but-,
0: but. Let's begin with the beginning of this story. Um, I just heard Tom Holland, who will soon be on the podcast talking about his new book, Pox. He was describing that he's not gonna be talking about Christianity in this. The Christians, he said, they were the little mammals scuttling around the feet of the dinosaurs in the period of, say, Trajans that he's discussing. Okay. Uh, but let's talk about the mammals. Because, <laughs> actually, I'd love to know more about the mammals in the time of the dinosaurs. And here we have sort of one of the yeah. first shrew-like little creatures entering into mighty Rome, filled with the Tyrannosaurus rexes. And it's Peter. Um, and legendarily, Peter comes to Rome and eventually is killed there. And that really, that's... That very, that skeleton is the cornerstone of the foundation of what comes afterwards.
1: Mm, exactly. And I think what i so thrilled by with the Peter story is not only that you can bear it out with historical evidence. I think most historians of all stripes now, the consensus in this is on the side that the letter is, is true that were the most likely course of events is that he did die in Rome in the middle of the first century and whether or not it was at the hands of Nero because of the fire might be up for debate and whether or not he was a martyr or just a mammal that was killed as a a criminal um, is a, a perspective if we're looking at it objectively. But what I love about this story is that the Christians are the underdogs. The first popes, if we're taking the traditional line, which is not really necessarily borne out by historical documents that starts with Peter. Uh, The first popes were anonymous in Rome. You know, they're not princes. They're not the head of a global church. They're not even in the first decades of Christianity authoritative amongst the Christians. When Paul, whose presence in Rome is much more well-attested than Peter's, is writing to the Romans before he goes there, he addresses multiple churches. These are people meeting in each other's homes and uh, furtively going out up to the Vatican Hill, which was the site of Nero's racetrack, and a cemetery, not a hallowed place, but actually a place, you know, some historians suggest drunkards would hang around and was quite a desolate place, Uh, not a place you choose to venerate. They were furtively going there and venerating a spot where Peter had died. Um, and he'd been executed. Later tradition, uh, later sources from the second century, like the Book of Peter, say that he was crucified upside down um, so that he wouldn't look like he was trying to emulate Jesus. Um, But the key thing here, whether you believe those sources or not, is that people are venerating this spot of somebody who was a Galilean fisherman, who was despised by the powers that be. And then slowly these figures are emerging to lead them. What's interesting about that is that if we reflect on where it goes, the fact that the Pope is still sitting in Rome when all these other powers have passed away is so unlikely as to be astonishing. But this is a deep, really human story. And also a story, and I think this is something I remember Tom emphasizing in Dominion, this idea of crucifixion being so gory, the idea that this was a really ignoble end, being transformed by Christians and then by their leaders into something that gave them the authority. And the basis of that is the idea put forward in Matthew's gospel that Peter is chosen by Jesus to be the rock that the church is built upon. And therefore, when he dies in Rome, The leader of the church has died in Rome. So the bishop of that city is the leader of the church. Primus inter Paris, the first among equals, as you said in your wonderful introduction. And that is what all of this rests on.
0: But then it's rested on also in the introduction, 2,300 bones. And that's just a little bit. First of all, we should make it clear. People aren't being buried in the catacombs because they're all martyrs. Right, and they're, they're, why? Why are Christians? Why do Christians in that in this period, when they're mammals surrounded by dinosaurs, why are they burying themselves or being buried in the catacombs?
1: It's an interesting question because underground tombs are used. There are also Jewish mm-hmm. catacombs in Rome. As it's not an area of expertise of mine, but I believe that to be true. And one of the benefits of particular religion um, in the ancient world is that you've got rights like that, to rights to be buried in a group, you've got access to charitable networks. And I think that you tap that question actually taps on, in on something that I'm, I hope has come across in the book is that these people who become the very structure that's used to build up the edifice of the papacy are by and large ordinary people who face who are anonymous to the powers that be and who face an end that was gory um, and are buried away um, until they are instrumentalized by popes and I think something that I, I'm not it's a question I don't know the answer to and I think might be impossible to answer because you we're know, getting into the mentality of an age particularly in an ancient age is really difficult but is how the popes had, or the bishops of Rome and the Christians, and actually bishops and Christians all over the world, how they were able to see the potential of this idea or the power of this idea. It was so radically countercultural. I think the obvious answer, perhaps, is that if that's how you think your God died or the Son of your God died in crucifixion, then when it's emulated, being killed unjustly by Roman authorities in an ignoble way, maybe it makes perfect sense. Actually, that's something that's going to be the most potent source of authority, of credibility that you can imagine. Because over and over again in this story you have popes going back to that. Um, Whether that be when they are trying to bolster their their voice as a global head of Christianity, whether they're trying to bolster their political position, or indeed whether they're literally building this into the fabric of Rome as a testament to the veracity of their religion and also uh, of their authority.
0: It it struck me, reading the book, that what Rome has that arguably no other city has is the dead and the dead of the church Uh, when you think about that first pope who came from underground after Constantine made toleration a thing when Constantine takes the imperial capital of Constantinople he can't take all the bodies he can't take the dead he can take lots of other symbols of imperial authority He he can take everything that's not nailed down other than Marcus Aurelius' statue on the Capitol line. But he can't take the dead. And so the bishops of Rome, the popes going forward, they always have the dead. And that is the overwhelming fact of Rome for the Christian church is here are our dead.
1: I think you're quite right. And there are some efforts uh, to translate relics to Constantinople, but the sheer weight of numbers is on Rome's side. And I think that it's something that early popes who are emerging, sort of proper popes, if you will, uh, in a palace, not in an anonymous quarter. After the edict of, or so-called Edict of Milan, it makes Christianity legal. And I think perhaps just as crucially, Constantine starts actually uh, funding monuments to Christianity, Mm -hmm. like. Basilica in Rome, albeit on the outskirts of the city. He's not quite ready to put them right in the center and annoy the pagan populace. But popes realize this really quickly. And one of the first sort of quite, I think, popes that instrumentalizes the martyrs, if you will, is Damasus I, who's a poet. He writes poetry, or i an expert. Apparently, it's not critically superb. <laughs> um, but it tells the stories of the martyrs in this quite gory way. Um, and is inscribed in places all over the city. This myth becomes written into the stones of the city, along with the bones. And I don't think it's a mistake that Damasus is also one of the first popes to become, or he is actually deemed to be the first society pope, one that recognises the power of getting the elite on board, who are now getting on board. Um, So the Edict of Milan is 313, and he's around in the 360s. And by the 380s, Jerome can complain about all these haughty women parading around St. Peter, pretending to be pious. So the elite are coming on board, and he realises that they're the people that the church needs to. Have on their side to patronise the charitable work that they're doing for an ever-growing number of converts to support these basilicas and palaces that they now have that cost a lot of money. He gets the nickname the Earpick to Great Ladies. <laughs> so much is his sort of proximity with these uh, with the uh, great patrons and patronesses and he's not alone lots of priests are criticized at this time for becoming too close actually to this with roman patriciate and curling their well, hair and being just he terrifying. fights
0: for the papacy in a way that no one would have done and say yeah. what when, this is what roughly 360s no yeah. one would have done yeah, this in exactly. the 260s but suddenly the papacy yeah. is an object like a senatorial office had been it's an object of exactly. lust now to be it's like the quaestorship exactly. or this back in the day and now it's the papacy
1: a hundred percent so he's a watershed in many ways and in that fight uh, with his rival for the papacy his supporters are taking to the roof of basilicas and chucking tiles down blood is pouring on the streets of Rome and one of the parts of that story I think that really juxtaposes where Rome's come from, where it is now, and where it's going to continue to go, is that his opponents hide out at the church dedicated to St. Agnes, a, a teenage girl who died for the faith not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And so there's this juxtaposition between the worldly and the humble in these martyrs uh, that can be quite jarring. And what's fascinating about Damasus is he is in so many ways the brilliant archetype, if you wanted to decry the corruption of the papacy, in with all of these sort of rich people fighting violently for this holy position. And yet it is to the martyrs that he turns. Even after Constantine has elevated the church, he realizes, like others who are going to come after him, Worldly leaders come and go. Their armies get stronger, their generals revolt. they can change their mind, they're out for themselves. They need to ground their power, they need to use those worldly leaders, but they need to ground their power ultimately in something that transcends all of this. And they have the trump card because they have Peter, who the next stop is Christ, who appointed Peter. And that's where their authority comes from, Uh, better than any army um, in in, in their case. But
0: Constantine has abandoned Rome. strategically reposition himself for future growth. That's probably what he would say if he was a stockbroker. But he, but when he leaves Rome, there is a gap that has to be filled. There is of rulership and authority. And the man who does it, who really is the innovator in, in ways that Damasus hadn't been, is Leo. Interesting how few are named the Great, sort of spontaneously. But <laughs> we well, talked about two of them, maybe the only two. And Leo the Great is one of them.
1: Yeah, what's interesting about Leo is that there is an emperor in the west when Leo is in power, Valentinian III, uh, but he's living in Ravenna a lot of the time. The emperors aren't spending a lot of time in Rome. Ravenna is on the east coast of Italy. It's safer from attack. Very inspiring
0: to have an emperor who wants to be where it's safe.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And and the emperor himself is sending out Mm. Leo to go out to meet people who are threatening Rome. So under it's under Valentinian that Leo is sent to meet Attila the Hun as he's encroaching on Rome and it's Leo who's sent to be the representatives of the people. When Valentinian was felled by other politicians uh, because he'd become paranoid about generals in his army, again these worldly concerns that popes generally at this time didn't necessarily have to worry about. It's Leo who goes out to meet the Barbarians who are encroaching on Rome in, in 455. He is the interlocutor of the people. And what's interesting about that, I think, is that number one, that sort of Valentinian sending these churchmen out, there's almost a self conscious self-consciousness of decay of decline of the fact that these people are useful figureheads because we they actually maybe they could be a kind of neutral uh, interlocutor they've got credibility as this sort of christian leader and then the fact that actually valentinian is felt by all of these concerns which are the concerns of a, an empire that is becoming corrupted and weak and falling apart at this time and so yes cometh the hour cometh the man leo was imposing and he was uh, impressive and uh, he had personal qualities according to the sources, but actually, it's the hour, I mm-hmm. think, that, that, that really matters here. And the fact that the decline of the Western Empire came at a time when that, that I want to say, I keep wanting to say myth of Peter, but it, it is ground in historical fact, but it does become the sort of status of myth at this time. And it's said by a chronicler that Attila looked up and saw Peter and Paul holding their swords over Leo's head. Now, whether or not Attila would attest to that if he were around today, I don't know. But it doesn't actually matter. What matters is that symbolizes um, this transcendence of papal power that meant that, hey, actually, he can step up and be a political figure as well as a religious one in place of the emperors, um, which is really quite remarkable in, in, in the 450s. Let's
0: move on to Gregory the First. If we're thinking about what the popes are inheriting from classical Rome, so I was thinking about it, and you could be really nerdy about this, but I was thinking that they're not senator, they're not even consul, but there's a way in which popes assume the role of the tribunate. Um, They become the sort of the voice of the people and the voice responding back to the people. And I think you see that, in Gregory is a Roman. English speakers always think of him very much in regards to England and the mission to England. People, medieval historians might think of him as a, a person who extends the reach of the papacy to as many corners of Western Europe as he can, but this is not that kind of book this is a book about gregory as a roman so what does gregory seems he seems to firmly establish the papacy as a social works it's no wrong way of putting it but it's integral to the social works projects of rome and to the health of the roman people
1: I think that's such an important point because I often think why is obviously I've spent several years thinking about why is the papacy survived in Taiwan Day and I think that that enduring role as pastor mm-hmm. is one that runs through the at the core of, of the primacy um, but also of the lived experience of living under a pope living yeah. with a pope
0: in I mean not to go too far forward but you had you finished the book with this yes. wonderful it was only two years ago but it was like reading history Francis walking around the the courtyard in front of St Peter's praying for the city in the world and that that mm-hmm. vision of the lonely Pope a Pope alone as pastor that extends all the way back to the very beginning and without that mm-hmm. there is no there is this book doesn't exist.
1: Quite, quite. And actually, what's interesting, I won't dwell on it, we'll go back to Gregory, but what's interesting actually about that moment is that, again, Romans, uh, I tried to speak to as many Romans as possible, particularly when I was writing the latter chapter of this book about these issues. And I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but across Italy, people tuned into, to them, and people were saying, I had goosebumps. There was this sense that in spite of all of these facts about what people believe, Mm. and the way they live their lives, and all of these things that you think would tear a, a, a completely insurmountable gap, between the people and the papacy, we look to Rome. many people look to the Pope to, when he speaks, um, and they either get really angry um, because he says something that seems to be completely counter to what we might want to hear, or they're really happy, and Francis is typical of that, um, that, you know, oh, the Pope is speaking with us. What interests me is, is not whether people agree with the Pope or not, or that can be interesting on a particular basis, but the fact that they mm-hmm. care why right. should we care? And, and I think that pastoral role rolls at the core. Um, and so that's why, I'm, yeah, Gregory is a fabulous figure for talking about that because it's one of the most wonderful vignettes. In the history of rome i think is this one of gregory walking through the city um, leading the people during what was a terrible time for them. the plague was uh, tearing through the city this is 590. the tibers burst its banks it happens a lot but i'm sure it's never never nice you know, it doesn't make it easier just it's happening a lot and the accounts of this okay they aggrandize it they say it a plague of serpents and a dragon came down the tiber did it happen i'm not sure but they they are trying to communicate that this was an absolutely dire time for the romans who do they turn to they can't turn to actually the secular overlord who is is the emperor in the east um at this time is through through delegates in ravenna they turn to the pope and their pope gregory is the uh, former prefect No, he's from a senatorial family so he's, he's actually is a sort of from a roman political family but his main role here is leading the people in prayer Um, And so you have this very human tragedy, a very human experience, a moment of deep connection between the people and the Pope of Rome. And what puts the cherry on the cake of this story is that um, they look up, they're walking past Hadrian's mausoleum, and apparently they see a vision of St. Michael the Archangel on the top. And again, whether or not that happened is, is up for debate. But the question, the very fact that this leads to the renaming of Hadrian's mausoleum as the Castel Sant'Angelo, the, you know, the, the Holy Angel, shows how these moments in which the Pope's lived out their office as the successor of st peter in connection and collaboration in in uh, working with the people of rome have shaped the city in ways that have been really permanent up until this mm-hmm. moment and yeah he's a really fascinating uh Roman, as a Roman. no
0: i just said that we weren't going to we shouldn't concern ourselves with gregory as a sort of universalizing pope but actually let's concern ourselves with that and with serve the ii because that's really important that that run of popes from say 590 to 760 who gradually who I was gonna say they infiltrate the presence of the papacy and the importance of the papacy but that's not quite right this is like a reader response thing there begin to be Irish monks and Saxon monks and and princes and kings retired kings coming to Rome because this is the city of the papacy and this is the city of the martyrs and there is a sort of complex dialogue Going back and forth between people around Western Europe and the bishops of Rome until Stephen finally, because he of the threat of the Lombards, always a problem, he seeks, he bigs up the king of the Franks into eventually something we could call the emperor.
1: And I think... Yeah, I think that sort of globalisation of the papacy is often something, or the globalisation of the Christian church with the papacy at the centre of the web, if you will, it's often something that we see, or maybe it's my own perversity as an early modern scholar, at that time of the Baroque church when you've got missions around the world and a Jesuit is becoming the first person to enter the Forbidden City in China and you really have all of the world manifest on the streets of Rome but you're right to look in, in this time um, when you've got pilgrims coming to the city and the first jubilees along way off but christians actually from the middle east are seeking shelter in rome which is remarkable from the land of jesus are coming to find refuge under the popes in rome and the pope as a global figure becomes something that's increasingly uh, political through the centuries but stephen ii who like many popes is facing a threat from lombards and there have been others as well the goths the vandals encroaching onto this land of which he's now the sort of figurehead the, the leader He's realized something. He's realized a power that he has that actually earlier popes did realize as well. You know, there were earlier popes who went out themselves to negotiate with the Lombards as they encroach on uh, Rome because they knew they couldn't rely on this emperor in the East or his exarchs to send people to help them. You know, they had their own problems. Um, they had their own peoples, their own borders to protect, and um, they had their own concerns. And popes found out that if they went and negotiated with um, these Lombards themselves, they were willing uh their kings Estar, lutepran who were christians were willing to say okay maybe we won't leave ravenna that's just a place might be an imperial capital but it's just a place but rome that's the patrimony of peter we'll leave that and they learn something that's incredibly it must be thrilling i'm not saying this was a moment of realization but there's a gradual realization that they actually can transcend the need for worldly help from people like Byzantine emperors, because they have a trump card. They have something that makes their land special. Um, Where Stephen II takes this even further is that he turns it not in from, it goes from being a means of protecting Rome into a means of actually helping. Secular leaders, as far as you can use the word secular for a leader of this time, but people, people who aren't pope, king, and other people who want to be kings and emperors, and so the Lombards are encroaching again because the promise is never imminent and he can't turn to the. East. Uh, they're preoccupied, so he goes to Pepin the Short, king of the Franks, and he says, "Please, can you help me? I don't have. You know, he doesn't have the forces. Can you help me?" And in return, Pepin helps him. He drives out the Lombards, he secures the Pope's territories, and in return, Stephen makes Pepin patrician of the Romans. I mean, what does that mean? There's a sense that he's got a paternal role over the Romans, and, and maybe that reflects actually saving the Romans. Maybe that's not that remarkable. His son, Pepin's son, Charlemagne, is made famously in 800 on christmas day uh, for doing something very similar and giving the pope a little bit more land maybe on top of you know what he's been given before and has been protected before Uh, he's made a holy roman emperor and you've now got a relationship um, or a situation in which popes are giving out prestige or bestowing prestige on worldly leaders in exchange for protection and land. I don't know that it's necessarily as transactional as that, but if we're going to boil it down to its simplicity, which gives the Pope actually a new mm-hmm. sort of power, um, is one of, of negotiation. And there are plenty of people who protect the Popes if they can become Holy Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and it goes off the essentially. So this
0: is, there's about 200 years from the fraying of Charlemagne's empire to say 1070 to Gregory, with the, to the reform Popes of the late 11th century, the 1070s, where the history of the papacy is very sketchy. It's sketchy enough that you can insert stories like the legend of Pope Joan into the lineage of the popes. But if we are to characterize that period, the popes become pretty hard men during that two centuries. As the rest of medieval Italy is developing around them and people are establishing themselves as counts and independent lords and the rest of it, they also are establishing themselves as a sort of count over a larger and larger fiefdom around Rome.
1: And of course, many of the people who become popes are, are literally mm-hmm. attached to those yep. families by blood and <laughs> we
0: by... We shall certainly um, talk when we talk about the Orsini and the Colonna and the rest of them, yeah. Yeah,
1: quite, exactly. And, and so they're part of this bigger and broader picture, I think, of grabbing power, if you will, and asserting power and I think that this is something that starts as soon as the papacy becomes sought after. You can even trace it all the way back to the people are willing to fight for the papacy. Then the papacy gets this sort of imperial cachet Mm -hmm. or or it has this imperial gift. And so it becomes even more desirable. And like so many things in the history of the Christian church, I, I mainly look at what's now known as the Roman Catholic Church. The church is corrupted and I think painted by the fact that it's, Aim is to save souls and that's what it's supposed to be there for and that's what many of the people getting involved are there for but in order to do that it has to become an institution and now it's become a really powerful institution with this sweeping sort of power and so people are taking advantage of that um it's an elected monarchy Mm -hmm. what what other sort of system is going to allow you to take not, you know, not to allow anybody to take advantage of this situation that you could become the head of christendom by election in the process of election involved lobbying and a faction and all kinds of intrigue and, and violence and if you believe the sources of the time were sex and and so it is a period in which i think there is a strong argument for kind of the corruption of the papal office and how it's sought i think also that we have a, a problem of sources in that period and that we have some incredibly detailed sources but they're by people like Lutrand of Promona who were also involved in it. He tells such, well, depends what kind of tells you. Church history isn't always that thrilling. And, and he tells stories about these noble families who you were know, women and um, had affairs with popes and then bore other popes, and you know, these popes died from exhaustion you know, with their mistresses. <laughs> and it's all very kind of dissolute. but he was somebody who was trying to get the favor of the Holy Roman Emperor, who was the enemy of these people. So he's not necessarily to be trusted in its entirety. And then people um, like and is, then later yeah.
0: reformers likewise are certainly they have to have something to reform there is plenty to reform but it doesn't serve them actually that fellow back in 930 he was all right they tell a story of unending corruption and incest and all the rest of it
1: absolutely and we know that the political machinations that you see during those years there are like referred to as the sort of nadir of the papacy the pornocracy, that continues in many form well in uh, you know, into the early modern mm-hmm. period, politicking, intrigue and humiliation of rivals and lobbying and violence. It's an attractive narrative that I think we should be a little bit wary of, but there certainly is of, of evidence of uh, the corruption. of the What's
0: interesting is that uh, you made me think about this in a way I hadn't ever thought about it before. But even with the arrival of people like Hildebrand, later Gregory the Seventh, and people in his... Amongst his cardinals, we should talk, we'll have to talk about what a cardinal is because that's important for Rome, not just for the church. But Mm. they still get expelled. And this is at the moment when princes are being forced out of all sorts of cities, and all sorts of Italian cities are creating republics. They're becoming re- they're Republican, okay, oligarchic, all the rest of that stuff. But there's, like, some conception, a little bit of conception of rule of law and popular sovereignty. And then, you know, for those of us who like this stuff, it's a really thrilling age. And yet, Gargulus VII is expelled. He has that the self-pitying, uh, what's his last words? I have loved what is good and hated what is evil, therefore I die in exile. And he's not the only one. He's plenty of popes die in exile. Oh. But the Romans never really, we'll get to one example, they never really declare themselves a republic free of the papacy, compared to what's happening all around them. That's interesting, oh. isn't it?
1: It is, and I think, I thought a lot about why that is. So there's the um, sort of re- revolution in 1143, the revolt uh, against Innocent II, who, who undermines a Roman plot to attack uh, Tivoli, by doing a deal with the, the people of Tivoli himself and that really is the straw that breaks the camel's back of this sort of this with the political aspects the worldly aspects that have, have attached themselves or developed out of the people role and it takes a long time for the pope to return it's a different, completely different pope but the figure of the pope until the in in the 1180s and and you've really got to ask yourself why would they take him mm-hmm. back why wouldn't they become you know, an independent commune and i think that there are a couple of reasons why, in my view. I think the people who rise up in that vacuum are exactly the families that are manipulating the papacy or similar families. So the Piaglioni the family that sort of back, or Giordano Piaglioni backs the revolt against um, the Pope in 1143, because everybody's sick of the Francipani. But these are just, it's just another mm-hmm. family. And all of these families, when the popes leave, so even during the Avign- Avignon papacy, in the 14th century and the popes leave for decades and decades, they're warring over Rome and they you know, aren't providing stability. They're certainly not providing you know, revenue to the city in the way that the popes can as the center of this global of, of Christian. Um, drawing people in. and later on it becomes for jubilee years to get indulgences, it becomes a huge part of the economy of the of rome and and the city and whether they're buying hay for their horses or they're laying down on a mattress that somebody's chucked down in their shop to call it a town you know this becomes something that's really integral to the city's economy but i think there's also something about the claim the authority because the papacy's been there for so long because it does have this authority that sort of is old and transcendent in that it's not contingent on one family one of many families it has a sense of stability, of continuity, and actually credibility, no matter what the man is that occupies that office. You can just vote for another one. The office is the thing that gives them authority. And I'm trying to remember actually now what, which revolt it was associated with. There's, there's a quote in one source about the fact that these people who raise themselves up to replace the popes they're just a law unto themselves. So this isn't somebody who's got this pastoral role that's grounded in Peter. This isn't the father of all Christians. And I think finally, I would say there's also a prestige attached to the papacy. So this is actually where the character of the office and the economic aspect of it, the kind of political stabilizing aspect of it come together. And this came out actually in some of the conversations I had with contemporary Romans. The, you know, they said Roman kind of boastful. Uh, we've got the papacy. You know, and there's this sense it comes up in the 19th century as well when they get a king of mm-hmm. Italy and, and he's based in Rome, that the king of Italy, somebody calls him Troppo piccola Causa, too little a thing <laughs> for Rome, Rome needs an emperor or it needs a pope, and hey, you've got a pope, so bring him back and then finally, and this really is the final thing, they're willing to negotiate yeah. and because they have this authority that they have certain limits but they're willing to negotiate and that's how they get back in 1188 and, and they negotiate all the way through to, it, to As you're
0: describing that, it makes them- Bologna, Milano, Genoa, all those guys also have noble families that rip the hell out of each other. I mean, this is why Bologna has yeah. 150, 250 towers, so then you, know, you have a place of last refuge. Oh. The Montagues are the Capulets, if you're in Verona. And those cities, eventually, the communes have to bring in a podesta, a big guy from some other city, to sort out their problems. And Romani must say, oh, well, we've got a podesta. It's the pope. I mean, at least he's elected, there's, there's a kind of the way that it works out for papal election, everything does work out, like he's a, a circulating sort of potestat who's able to settle you know, the Orsini and uh, the rest of these, these quarreling families and able to create some sort of civic peace for a certain amount of time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is a sense that the way that popes are elected changes a lot yeah. over um, time and gradually ends up being in the hands of a group of smaller and smaller people, a uh, smaller and smaller group of people rather than in the hands of, of the Cardinals. But in 1378, uh, when you've not had a pope in Rome or not, you've had several popes, one in Rome and, and others in other places that haven't been able to settle the issue of who would be uh, the pope after they returned from Avignon. The Romans are at the gate of the conclave saying, we want to it's like old them, times. or at least an Italian, not a Frenchman. Yeah, yeah. they believe that they have a say, that they should have a say, and actually, there's a whole phenomenon of a sort of ritual pillaging that comes with the vacancies and when the pope dies and, and his law dies with him. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. I think it's John, who's the historic great historian of the city of Vicante, says, in that moment, it's the moment that the people have their mm-hmm. say. And even if they shut out the conclave, they're going to make themselves known. So there is a sense that they, they have a savior at this, even when, even when so technically speaking, they don't. They can frighten the cardinals, hopefully, into doing uh, what it is. There's uh,
0: a couple places in the margin I put an old New York Jewish joke. Is it good for the Jews in the margins? Not because literally is it good for the jews but this is always the joke when you know, there's a garbage strike and you talk about it and the concluding question from your papa is but is it good for the jews and i'm sure all, so much of this comes down to uh, how would i say mafa ai romani is it good for the romans oh. whatever is going on here you know there's going to be a some sort of conference on transubstantiation and from this book's perspective the question is yeah yeah but is that good for the romans
1: I think that's one of the, again, daunting things about, sounds like I was terrified writing this book. In many ways I was, but one of the daunting things about writing this book is that I can never understand what the papacy means to the Romans. And and what struck me actually talking to Romans and reading as many sources as possible was that actually it's a bizarre position to have the leader of your city being somebody who means so much to so many people in the world for so many different reasons and who people want to have a stake in. The Queen of England, Elizabeth II, is, is one of these so quite trans- transcendent figures here people say the Queen I think people think of her and she meant a lot to to other people for various historical reasons but there's nothing like this maybe I'm being very self-referential bringing in bringing in the Queen here but it's I don't think it's an experience actually that I can ever understand Um, and I'm very conscious a a British historian uh, coming to write this history about the popes and the people of Rome that it's a relationship that or just Roman perceptions of the papacy are, are very difficult to uh, to grasp but yeah but, so, to yeah. distinguish
0: from say sienese or florentine mm-hmm. or bolognese perceptions of the papacy just a, it's not a catholic thing it's not even an italian thing This a civic thing and that is it is yeah. hard to it is hard to get at You mentioned the jubilee of 1300 one of the great money-making events mm-hmm. in the history of, of the papacy and definitely something that was very good for the romans uh, unquestionably mm-hmm. Let's then talk about what was very bad for the Romans. As you say, they saw it as such, and that's the Avignon Papacy. Could you briefly describe mm. that? Absolutely. So.
1: We have actually the figure that sparks both in a way. Boniface I in 1300 declares the first year of Jubilee. If you come to Rome, this is the legend reiterated again. If you pray in these Roman basilicas, you can have this extraordinary indulgence that um, will take away sins, um, you know, confess and go to mass. The interesting thing of this uh, about this with regard to the global papacy that you were talking about, the sort of we, we talk about with Gregory the Great, is that the these indulgences are then translated to other areas of Christendom. So papal primacy and its power can be filtered out, and such is its, its power. Um, but Boniface is really a papal prince par excellence. He establishes libraries, he funds univer- the university, um, he establishes this jubilee, and he really emphasises an aspect of papal, this, this the fact that they have a, an authority that supersedes even that of emperors, uh, in a way that really aggravates uh, worldly leaders. <laughs> And it really aggravates some Philip the Fair in France to the point of where you've had popes saying, I am the sun that illuminates, you know, and the emperor is just the moon. It's mm-hmm. just reflect. But Philip the Fair is grown tired of this um, because it has practical implications. It means that popes are saying, and it goes on into the 17th century in Venice and later, popes are saying, I, I elect bishops." Um, you, you can't have that argess and that control over who, who guides the people. You can't tax the clergy. You can't tax the church. It's seen as interfering in. This is the Gregorian
0: church. revolution. The, this is the first mm-hmm. intimations of church-state conflict and dialogue and sorting it all out, kind of
1: thing. Yeah. So Philip the Fair sends agents to Rome, not to Rome, to Agnani, just outside of Rome, where Boniface the Eighth is, and says, retract what you're, you've been saying. Retract these uh, threats of excommunication. Or sit down as pope. I mean, it's pretty bold. <laughs> um, he's not the only bold Philip who challenges the pope in this way. And they're meant to do this, but they end up in a huge violent scuffle, and Boniface dies of the wounds. And Boniface had successors. At the most long lived of these, well, the first long lived of these, is elected in Perugia and then installed in Lyon because he has to go to France to sort out this mess of this conflict with, uh, with the king. And he ends up staying there. He's got to sort out the problems. There are things delaying him Then he has successes. And Avignon, it's far from Rome. There's not so many people that are potentially quite angry with the papacy or these warring families aren't there. Geographically, it's at the center of Christendom and actually as things go along you know, they start building up buildings there um and palaces and you know monasteries, and, and then they bring the archives over which um, as an historian is, is immediately this is the red flag uh-huh. like it's gone yeah. forever right it's not, you, they've got the records <laughs> and, and what's really fascinating about this is that even as they're doing this um even as clement vi he's an incredibly sort of grand who who really builds this kind of palatial residence in avignon there's this recognition and these references to rome that show How important Rome is as a place, how tied this city, this once imperial city is now into the Roman, into the papacy. Um, They call a whole wing of the palace Rome. Mm. You know, we've seen this with Constantine. Very bad. If you're a Roman, this is the
0: worst of all possible signs.
1: Yeah, that's true. But it's also a sign of the importance Mm. of Rome. OK, it's a lie. It's not Rome. It can never be Rome. It doesn't have the body. Right? Show me the really? bodies. And so this is a sign of the actually the link between Rome and the papacy. But it's also a, um, something that's terrible for the Romans. Um, in t- economically, you've got this the entire translation of and now a huge administration to another place and everything that's attached to this, you know, the, the notaries, administrators, cooks, everything. It's, you know, they're all left, and uh, not you know, a huge number going to Avignon. So you know, people are still coming, which is quite remarkable, but obviously you haven't got as many pilgrims coming, you haven't got people coming to see the Pope. And also the Pope is sending money here and there, if there's a fire at a basilica, but you haven't got the investment in the building. So you do get a real period of decay. Um, you do get a period of even more warring families, because there's a power vacuum, um, and you get this sense which of, uh, the Rome needs the popes. The, the Roman papacy, or the papacy rather, a uh, Freudian slip is degraded by not being in Rome because now they're just the pawn of a foreign person dis, dislodged from their root, uh, living a lie in Avignon, calling a wing of their palace Rome, and Rome needs the popes because it's falling apart without them and nobody can take charge. And so I actually really was a bit trepidatious when I came to researching and drafting out that part of the book, because I thought the Albanian papacy is not gonna be a good meaty area for this book about the history of Rome and the papacy, because they're away from each other for so long. But actually it's a snapshot that shows us the strength of that tie, that sort of mutual reliance. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the popes have got to come back and and they eventually do, but not without much of heartache to the Roman people.
0: One of the delightful things about medieval Rome, if you're a medievalist, is the way that medieval Romans are completely unconcerned with their classical heritage. And I love the the vignettes. I mean, by the late 8th century, I seem to recall from that the population of Rome was probably down to about 20,000 people. In a city that had yes, been built be for a million, and then after the Black Death goes up and up, like the rest of the European population after the Black Death crashes again precipitously into the in the late 14th century. But you have people living in the ruins of a great city. And talk about post-apocalyptic escape from New York, Fear of the Walking Dead kind of stuff. Uh, hermits mm-hmm. living in broken-down aqueducts. I forget which three families all have titles to parts of the Colosseum and probably you know, their Bravos are probably in the, in the arena against one another. There's a church and a pantheon, all these things happen. But what I love about that always, it's a kind of concerned with the weight of the past and they're just using yeah. it because it's here. It's yeah. like living in a quarry of cool stuff. But and yeah. you made me see uh, in a way that I never thought about before, the ways in which the, the feeling of the Avignon papacy spurs what we call now the Renaissance or the reappropriation of this classical past. Now, there are a lot of other reasons for it, but beware Mm. of the monocausal explanation. But I never thought of the Avignon papacy, that sort of sense of dislocation, of the papacy being away. But also all these cardinals and so on, bustling back to Rome, coming from Avignon, nice place, wonderful. But Avignon, sort of like the, the Brasilia of papal capitals, built a new city, and now you're back in the city. Uh, And Uh you're surrounded by all this cool stuff. And what is this cool stuff that we've never paid attention to? Let's collect it. Uh, And Uh and all these wonderful anecdotes you tell, and tons of them, about how easy it's like to just walk around, pick stuff up off the ground in the forum, uh, find a Uh ring or a cameo or something. They're all just, it's all lying around. No one has paid attention Uh to it till now, or Uh not as much Uh as they now do.
1: Yeah, I think you're. I think it's a really interesting. It's interesting to you, know, so I, you tell these. I tell these stories, and then to hear them reflected back. Mm-hmm. Well, these conclusions is really interesting and gets me thinking even more deeply about it. And of course, yeah, the Renaissance is sparked by many things. And in, in, in but, it's just, it, and it, but it's, it's in not the just. But it's not just
0: because people start translating a bunch of Greek texts, with all due respect no, to translators and yeah. to Greek texts. Yeah. I mean, because that's a very that's the story that academics tell or scholars tell. Bookish people tell bookish stories, and so books are important to us. But when you think about it, there is, as you say, to quote yourself, an anxiety of identity and status in Rome that Mm -hmm. comes from the papacy being elsewhere, of no longer being the universal capital of the world. And Mm -hmm. that makes you think about the long history of this place.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the key things that is accepted as a driver of the Renaissance is Mm patronage. And when the popes return to Rome in the early 15th century, finally, decisively, more or less, um, in Martin V, it's in ruin. We get the account of Luther later on, who maybe has a reason to point up the degradation of Rome. Um, But you also have people who've got no other reason, like Flavia Biondo in the end of the 15th century saying, this place is falling apart and it's been left for a long time. So it's backed up by just, you know, the pure uh, reality of having been abandoned. So there's a need. And then you've got supreme patrons, you've got popes who come back, you need to rebuild and need to assert themselves as the rulers of this this city, of the capital of Christendom and then put that together with the revival of the classical texts, the discovery of these ancient sculptures, um, the genuine interest that many of these sort of papal princes had in these texts that were being mined out of libraries. And you do get the transformation of a city. You get the reordering of the Capitoline by Michelangelo. You get Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. You begin to actually get the face of papal Rome as it endures uh, today with a lot of the Baroque ornament and additions. And so I think there certainly is something in, in the fact that patronage driven out of the need created by the Avignon papacy to restore Rome but also to imprint the papal rule on the fabric of Rome and to aggrandize the papacy which have been degraded by the uh, the Babylonian captivity in Avignon is a, a draw of, of actually getting these creations created right? they're the ones funding it we're it's a,
0: already at um, an hour and so we're over time but if you'll indulge me I want to ask you some questions about I think the place that you feel Happiest in which is 16th century Rome. What yeah, I like th- thinking of the what I would perversely think of is the age of Carafa, Gian Pietro Carafa, the guy turns up everywhere until eventually he becomes, to my mind, maybe the most terrifying pope. Uh, Paul IV, yes. he, you find him everywhere helping create the Theatines, buying the first torture tools for the Roman Inquisition, housing them in his basement, and also as a patron. Uh, Patronizing things and also creating a climate of Rome, which is ever more cosmopolitan. Japanese samurai coming to visit. Paul IV is dead by this time, but it's very much still, I think, his Rome. It's cosmopolitan and yet also it's anxious. It's deeply anxious, even terrified a little bit. Uh, of one another. He, someone like Reginald Pole can be friends with Carafa, but then Carafa can then suspect him of being a secret Lutheran, even though he's now mm. Queen Mary's Archbishop of Canterbury and dies, fortunately for him, just around the same time that Mary does. This is this, this cosmopolitanism, and yet anxiety and paranoia. They all mix together.
1: Mm. Mm. I think that they are finding aspects of, of early modern Rome. Uh, there is a desire and a need, because of the Reformation, to protect and to promote the idea that Rome is a holy and pure city, something more than a city. The head of christendom this is an idea that's been chucked out by uh, whole states at this time you know, who are turning to lutheranism and those ideas of protestantism and rome doubles down on this idea because this is what is the grounding of all of us we've I've reiterated so many times rome is essential to the papacy. So rome needs to represent that that image and reiterate that message over and over again and the problem with having to present a an image of purity is that it's impossible and the reality of Rome is this, a city where there are people of other religions, like Jews, who were there before the first right. Christians and who are an integral part of the city. But the fact that um, there are people coming from all over the world, the fact that the economy is such that it's not necessarily the most sophisticated place, there's a lot of poverty, pilgrims are coming, you know, with bloodied feet, battered from the journey, needing hospices, people fall into poverty, prostitution is rife. The reality of this city, much of which is generated by the reality of the papacy <laughs> being there and it being this global capital, means that you cannot you cannot have a pure city. I don't think you can have one anywhere, least of all in 16th century Rome. And so you get extreme figures like Carapha. He was exceptionally... It's rich.
0: interesting because you're right. He is a utopian, isn't he? In his way, yeah. as just as what? much as Lenin. Sorry to make that. It's very. If anybody is the figure of the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers Karamazov, it's Karafa. That's completely unfair to him because I think I I mean he was the Grand Inquisitor. Doesn't believe in the man who's in front of him, uh, as it were. Mm. But is that there's a flavor of Karafa in the Grand Inquisitor?
1: He's the essence. He's the essence of later, and I'm not saying that. Yeah, that it's a caricature, but it's there's an essence of all these later caricatures um, that emerge um, that is true in in Karafa. What's Interesting about Karafa, Many interesting things about Carafa because he is an extreme person. He's Neapolitan. He loads Spanish. He is severe. He's austere. He is fiery. He creates the ghetto. He tries to purify him of Jewish influence. He puts the fig
0: leaves over the Sistine Chapel news.
1: Quite exactly. But, and so, this isn't the most interesting thing no. about Carafa. But one of the things I find really interesting about Carafa is that he is exceptionally extreme. Now we see these, he didn't found the Inquisition, he was one of the key cardinals, he ran the Inquisition, he urged the Pope to found it, but it was Paul III that founded the Inquisition. Other Popes are zealous in the way that Carafa is, but the extremity with which he pushes the Inquisition to be ruthless. The actions of of the Inquisition under Carafa, these brutal punishments, you don't see this with many other Popes, because many other Popes realize this, difficulty, the impossibility of purity. And actually, what's really interesting is these are these episodes when the acknowledgement of a need to compromise, um, a need to negotiate, a need to be less than pure come in. And one of the most thrilling uh, parts of my research in Rome was in the Inquisition archive when I found a document that indicated that Ignatius Loyola, the head of the Jesuits, had been corresponding with the Inquisition to help a Portuguese man who was a converted Jew who seemed to have relapsed into his the practice of the Jewish faith. In 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 other times in different times uh, and in other places in Spain and Portugal there were rules that were and and under the popes there are rules that say if you relapse it's over. That's it. But he was allowed Loyola was allowed to take this man to the house of the catechumens and say this time we'll teach him better. And ultimately I think you you're right to to maybe give to point out the difference between The Grand Inquisitor and Carafa. You know, the Grand Inquisitor doesn't believe. Carafa does believe, and I think that's something we really have to remember when we're thinking about these moments of compromise, which can be quite shocking, Mm -hmm. but actually are quite logical. Mm -hmm. If you really think that you're right, and that it's only through being a Christian and a Roman Christian that you're going to have a good chance of getting into heaven, then you're going to be willing to bend the rules a bit if you think you're going to get somebody to heaven. And I think the problem, as alluring as it is, and as, as as factually basis it is in figures like Caratha with having these black legends of the Inquisition and these sort of almost thrillingly terrifying uh-huh. figures is that it can be easy to forget that they're not just out to kill people for the sake right. of it they're actually being driven by what they we, we can take our own view on what we whether we think we're, they're right or not but what they think is more important than life or death eternal life or eternal death and, and so he's interesting in, in in how exceptional he is as well as being typical of, as you say, this anxious time, but equally a time when Rome got one of its most beautiful faces, the Yeah,
0: we should talk about the Baroque. But, I mean, he looks at Europe. What are his, what are his dates of, the, of his papacy?
1: He's in the 15... He finishes in 1559. Right. Uh, I think 1554 to 1559, Yeah, yeah,
0: you're right. Okay. <laughs> Professor Wikipedia tells me 15, 1555 May to August 1559. Ah, um, I mean, this is... Uh, he's seen tremendous... Errors. Think about how I can only imagine, and you probably know what he wrote about the Schmalkald articles, about Charles V trying to make nice with the Lutherans, with Luther himself, the Antichrist, in order to fight the Turks. I mean, this is not where John Pietro Carafa lives, that kind of compromise. What he sees is the body of Christ is being ripped apart, and he wants to repair it somehow. And he won't do anything to repair it, but he'll think about it he'll give it he'll give it some consideration that's that's his anxiety is that anxiety of seeing something beautiful being destroyed before his very eyes
1: yeah, and he was—he seems to be an, have been an exceptionally kind of fearsome. And it's to say, he's a, he's extreme, yeah. even if it's helpful to put ourselves into thinking yeah. about what his yeah. No, I mean, it's you know, much nicer to think that.
0: about Contarini or Reginald Paul, one of these other guys he actually falls right, out exactly. with. But that's why it's helpful to think yeah. about Carafa because you know, the other guys are more to our taste. But let's talk about the Baroque, uh, the Roman Baroque. Uh, I've learned there's like a Lecce Baroque, a Southern Italian Baroque. There are different types of Baroque, and some people know oh. the German Baroque, but... The Roman Baroque, talk about cosmopolitan, it also has, it's cosmopolitan, but also it does reflect this anxiety, does it not?
1: It's, yeah, it's, it, you, you, it, in the time of the Reformation, the aftermath of the Reformation, and also in as the world started to change politically, just thinking about, I'm gonna to get to the Baroque, but um, thinking about Carafa and his view that um, certain things had to be kept pure. Even in the 17th century, there are many popes that agree with him. And when in the Thirty Years' War powers start, like France start working with the Lutheran King of Sweden, they're saying, look, we're being pragmatic. We're fighting about territory here. And the Pope says, no, you can't deal with heretics. And the world's moved. on. You know, they, they care about religion, but they're not as puritanical as the Pope because they, they can't be. Um, they have to protect their, their lands. On the other side of things, the Pope can't not be because the entire edifice rests on this idea that it, Rome is this holy place and that there is one orthodoxy and that it is the Pope that represents, the, that is the head of the church that represents that. And in one way, the Baroque is an astonishing response to an anxious time and because of the Reformation and other things. But, you know, the, it is an astonishing response. But in a way, it could, maybe it's the only response mm-hmm. is, okay, This is what we are. Let's show it more. Let's show it more compellingly. Let's bring those dead bodies up and make them out of marble and make them live again. Let's make St. Andrew burst through a gold sunburst. Let's make a statue of actually somebody who was alive not that long ago. But yeah, they're in heaven too. And let's make it so that light shines on it, to illuminate it on the feast day. That's the Benini's. Statue of Saint Teresa of Villa, Santa Maria della Vittoria. Lights. This is supposed to invoke emotion, and in doing that, to really communicate the reality of this message. And the visual, astu- the visual result is astonishing and seems incredibly bold. But in, in many ways, I think that yeah, it was the only response the papacy could have given because the papacy is not, you can't dilute the, the idea of the papacy. It's quite simple at its core. And as soon as you start picking at it and saying, oh, you can share a bit of power. Maybe actually somebody else can decide about orthodoxy. It all falls apart. So we're back with the saints and the martyrs.
0: And I would imagine an enormous budget spent on candles. I I don't know if you ever found an account book. I would love to see how much they were spending on candles. I read somewhere that those displays, these thousand candle, a thousand candles in a church. And often, you know, how do you light all of them? But they would tie a fuse from wick to wick so they could light them all simultaneously.
1: Gosh, I didn't I know mean, that. it solved a really problem yeah. in my
0: head once I thought about it. Gosh, how do you light a thousand candles before, by the time you get to the end, surely one's burnt out. But if you do it that way, if you mm. set it all up, then you hit it, open the doors of the church, and it's bursting with light in a way that no one mm. ever would it possibly experience in their everyday mm. life.
1: I think that's something that's really important to underline, that this brought heaven to mm-hmm. earth in the dirty dangerous city of Rome, you could walk into a church where people were praying these new devotions, like the 40 hours devotion, you know, throughout the night, in a church illuminated by candles with saints in gold and marble. One of the sad things about the persistence of Baroque Rome, if you can call it, say there's anything sad about it, I like the Baroque, is that we've become used to it. Um, And I think it's very uh, difficult to imagine what it would have been like to walk into a church like that, the power of the Baroque yeah. um, on the ordinary believer. I've come
0: to like Baroque, I had my Gothic phase, but I, I now really a professor of our history of mine once said that you have to understand Gothic You can only go understand Gothic by going to a Gothic cathedral at the right time of year and realizing the play of clouds and light in England or northern France coming through. And it's easier to do that with a chart or somewhere where the windows weren't destroyed and where you have that interplay of that kaleidoscope of light circulating across the floor. But it's not you cannot illuminate Gothic cathedrals with candles, but Baroque is made for candles. I'm sure that candle manufacturing had gotten to the point where you could really make a lot of them. It's made to glow from the inside in much the same way that St. Teresa does in the Bernini sculpture. Um, It it has that same effect to provide for its its viewer.
1: Immersive. Not just awe, but immersive. Mm -hmm. You get circular churches, you're standing in the middle of it. It's the opposite of the sweeping Gothic. You're in awe, you're, you're, you're not an outsider, but you're an ant. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. You're at the center of this. And it strikes me, actually, I, I don't um the history of it, but it, it strikes me that candles also are acts of lay devotion, lighting candles, saying prayers. And I don't know the history of that, um, but it strikes me that, um, the, you know, that this is also a period in which the lay person is thought about perhaps more than ever mm-hmm. before in terms of liturgy and piety and the experience of piety and and the experience of being in a church and and coming face to face with these these saints and, and going on pilgrimages around Rome and, you know, there are figures like Cesare Baronio who write these archaeologies of Rome, essentially, where which mean that people could go around and retrace the footsteps of the martyrs and see the martyr in full, not technicolor, but it feels like that, full technicolor. And so maybe that sort of the, the saints of Rome that underpin all of that are alive in Rome and, and instrumentalize in the pushback against all these sources of anxiety in a way that they've never been used before.
0: Well, I want to, we're way over time, but I want to conclude with an anecdote of an eminent German visitor bribing, tipping a guard so that he can fall, take a nap on the papal throne, which I had known that anecdote, I'm embarrassed to say, I'd never heard that Goethe did that. And it gets us to this period where for people like Goethe, something worse, at least from the papist maybe the papacy's perspective and Rome's perspective, it's not that people are angry at you, it's they don't care. And and Goethe is, as in so many things, uh, looks backward but also forward to us and and shows that sort of, "Yeah, yeah, that's nice, but it's not really important. And he exemplifies that sort of attitude I had when I was eight. Get rid of that other stuff so I can look at the real Rome, the classical Rome. Um, that's why mm-hmm. he and other visitors, because they're Protestants or they're atheists, mm-hmm. but they, they want the real Rome. They don't want the lived Rome. They don't want the Rome as it actually mm-hmm. is. They want an antiquarian Rome.
1: Yeah, they want the classical. They didn't want all of this decadent accoutrements. What's really interesting about Goethe is he cares, but he doesn't. Just like well, there are other well, figures. Gibbon. You,
0: you quote Gibbon, but Gibbon did convert to Catholicism briefly. So obviously, the pull mm. of Rome <laughs> meant something to him more right. than it did meant to Goethe. Um, so
1: and the fact is that Goethe mentions this this anecdote, and I don't believe we can choose to believe Goethe him take, eating his lunch in the Sistine Chapel and taking a nap on the Sistine on the papal throne because it's such a good story. Yeah, so we'll believe it. him. Um, but the fact is, is that he he did want to write it down because it showed, he did want to point out, hey, I'm a bit of a rebel. I'm, I'm willing to do this. So that means that it means something to do that right, in spite of it uh, perhaps being something that's meant to undermine it. Goethe goes to see the Pope saying mass, and he's disappointed by the person of the Pope. He says, oh, he's just an old man shuffling about. I was here to see the leader of the Christian world. He's still acknowledging in that, that this is something that he wants to be something great. And not to take too much of a leap, but I think it's an attitude that pervades the sort of 18th and 19th century visitors to Rome who are flippant about the papacy. Mm-hmm. Napoleon is a really key protagonist in this. He say you know, the old machine will fall apart himself. But when the Pope won't give him his blessing, when the Pope won't say, (laughs) yes, Napoleon, you're right, or, or I'll tell everybody to follow what you want. The two Popes won't do this. He kidnaps them. He doesn't just say, oh, leave them where they are in their palace. They're completely insignificant. He has to physically remove them from Rome. And in doing that, they're showing there's an allure to Rome. There's an allure to papal Rome. There's an allure to the papacy that that people like Napoleon want to instrumentalize. And the fact that those things pass away and the papacy remains. And, you know, the popes are visited by the leaders of secular republics. Even today, the president of the United States, of course, the pope is the head of the largest of the, I think, the largest religion in the world in terms of Christianity as a whole. It's not just because he's speaking to lots of Christians. It's because for some reason, in spite of ourselves, sometimes, we still care. Mm-hmm. And, and I think even Gertrude still cared. Otherwise, he wouldn't yeah, I, know.
0: That's, that's a lovely way to end this. I was thinking of moments like the death of John Paul II and mm-hmm. or then even more shocking, the resignation of Benedict. It's such an inside, you would think it's such an inside baseball kind of thing. Who really cares mm-hmm. about that besides Catholics? But it was so shocking. Mm-hmm. And people realized was... Mm-hmm even if they had no idea who Celestine was and Il Gran Refuto. But they realized this was unprecedented, isn't it? Very nearly. And people were focused on it. It was like it was a drama. It was a world drama. And that's just crazy in a way that we all still, that, that has that capacity to make us attend to it.
1: Exactly, exactly. And it takes us back actually quite neatly to where this book started for me is all of these people who quite often are quite angry with the Pope for saying certain things and bringing things to me. Why why does the Pope think he has the right to say, to say that about about this controversial issue or that? And people, why do you care? But they do. And that's why I wanted to tell this story. I wanted to trace the history of that led us up to this moment. I don't actually, I have lots of answers as to why we care. Um, I, I don't have a concrete, neat answer, but what I've tried to do with this book is trace the story of how we got here.
0: For many other answers and examples of why we might care, all the way through Pio Nono and Non Pulsumis, et, et cetera, I recommend that you read Jessica Warnberg's book, City of Echoes, A New History of Rome, Its Popes and Its People. Jessica Warnberg, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking.
1: A pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.